0: Angelica here Spurbs Welcome to episode 60 of Spurbs Herbs. Today we're going to be talking about an interesting herb, Aramophila Arumf- longifolia, also known as arrogant. So that's Aramophila. Longifolia, and trust me, I did practice this. (laughs) It's just tough sometimes with the Latin. All right, without further ado, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Today's episode is looking at another herb of the world. In this case, another Australian herb, Aromophila longifolia, commonly known as berrigan. I have no clue what this herb is used for, but I am super excited to find out and add some more knowledge. And as usual, We will be exploring something a little different we will discuss the pharmacological concept of bioavailability and discuss its marketing aspects as well please join us as we find out more uh, find out about an interesting australian herb it's going to be another interesting and dare i say exciting episode Before we get into that, I want to tell you about something. I am starting a webinar, a new webinar series. I just started. I had the first episode last week, and I wanted to let my podcast listeners know about it before anyone else. It is Integrative Nutrition in Chinese Medicine and will cover biomedical and Chinese concepts of nutrition and explore the complementary and alternative concepts that are part of the modern supplement industry. This series will be one live class per month, covering a category of nutrition and will include some basic biochemistry, nutrition, and supplements available on the market. In other words, it's going to be the perfect combination of biochemical nutrition, supplements, Chinese medicine, and real-world use cases. Why would you use this stuff? If you are a practitioner of any stripe or just interested in nutrition, this is the series for you. And you can sign up for the first class or the whole series at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's integrativemedicinecouncil, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. I will only be teaching each class live one time. After that, it will only be available as a recording. So don't miss this opportunity to learn about a topic all our patients ask about and get a firm understanding of the basics of integrative nutrition. And that brings us to our little something different today, which is going to be bioavailability. And this is an interesting topic. It may not sound like it, but it can be. It's important in pharmacology, but it is often distorted when it comes to marketing of supplements. Let's talk about the science and definitions behind bio- bioavailability, and then discuss how it can be misused by shady marketers to to separate their customers from their money. Technically, bioavailability is what fraction of the dose of a drug or supplement reaches its site of action or a body fluid where it has access to its site of action. So generally what this means is the blood. By definition, the bioavailability of an intravenous injection, so if you inject something directly into the vein, it is a hundred percent. So because blood is considered to be one of those body fluids where it has access to its site of action. So once it gets into the blood, that's considered to be bioavailable. And so if you're injecting something directly into the blood, 100% bioavailable. The difference comes in when we do an oral, when we we ingest it, so oral drug or supplement blood concentrations will always be less than an intravenous administration. In other words, it will less than 100%. So when you eat something uh, or, or swallow a supplement or even put it, you know, the sublinguals under your tongue, it's always going to be, not all of it is going to get to the blood. And so it's always going to be less than 100%. And we haven't even, we're not even going to talk about sublinguals today. That's a great topic for us to talk about in the future. Uh, but that has aspects, you know, that can certainly uh, be affected by bioavailability as well. Now, in general, Bioavailability, bi- it's hard to say sometimes, bioavailability can be plotted on a graph. And we have a graph here for those listening. It's, it's basically, it's just a, a curve with a, a steep hill and then it goes, goes down. It, it, there's nothing special to it, but there are several relevant variables in talking about bioavailability. bioavailability. The first one is something called Cmax, which is the maximum plasma concentration of a drug or supplement. So you take something in, where is that going to get its maximum? And of course, that depends on the dose. It also can depend on the timing of the dose and the half life of the dose. So um, we're going to get into all those in just a second. Well, at least some of those. So that's Cmax. There's also a minimum or trough concentration or Cmin, and that doesn't really play a huge role. Again, Dosing can play a role, half-life can play a role, but also what's really important is repeated dosing. Is like how often are you taking it? So semen, eh, it's important, but eh, whatever. We have the half-life. And this is interesting. It's the time needed to decrease the plasma concentration of a drug by half. And that's not really relevant to bioavailability directly, except for TMAC. It, um, half-life is not just the time to decrease the plasma concentration by a drug, it's also the time it takes for, it, it's often related to the time it takes for a drug to enter the blood. And so uh, there's other aspects to that as well, but so it can be related to it, but not directly, but it's an important, important pharmacological concept. What is very important to bioavailability, we talked about this curve and the area below these curves, so it's 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 you have this curve, and then everything under it is shaded in the in the picture that we have. But just think of that as a as a shaded curve. Um, this is called it's a pharmacological concept, and it's actually called area under the curve. Now that may sound really strange, but actually, if, if you're familiar with calculus at all, and we're not going to talk too much about math, but calculus is this is integration. Uh, an integration of a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a formula is this area under the curve, basically. And so this is, the, this is an integration, a calculus-derived variable. And it's called, a, it's area under the curve, and it's shortened AUC. So AUC is a measurement of total drug exposure over time. Now, again, that may not sound like bioavailability. Bioavailability is like how much of it gets into your system but technically, the definition of bioavailability is of a, there's a formula, and it's a mathematical formula, and it's basically bioavailability of an oral drug is the AUC oral, so how much of it, uh, how much drug exposure is there from an oral dose divided by AUC injected, or how much drug exposure there would be if it were actually injected, which remember is always one hundred percent, and you times it by one hundred, so to get a percentage and that's the technical definition of bioavailability. I don't think we need to worry about the technicality so much in this other than to know that it's a measurement of how much of a given substance can actually enter the body, especially when it's done orally when you're, when you're ingesting it. And there are several factors that can affect bioavailability. First one is an interesting one and it's called first pass hepatic metabolism. And what that refers to is drugs and supplements entering the hepatic portal system from the intestines. So this is getting a little technical, but with the anatomy of the intestines, what happens is when we ingest something from our intestines, it normally, so a portal system, so normally we have um, blood comes from the heart, goes into the arteries, which goes into arterioles, capillaries, into venules, into veins, and back to the heart. So that's a loop around the body. A portal system is interesting because instead of going arteries, capillaries, we're gonna skip the arterioles and venules right now. Um, instead of going uh, arteries, capillaries, vein, veins, heart, it goes arteries, capillaries, vein, capillaries, vein, heart. In other words, there's a second capillary bed in there. And they're fairly rare in, in, in the body. The hepatic portal system is one of those. The other one that um, we're, we're not going to get into, but there's there's um, there's one uh, involving the pituitary gland. We're not going to talk about that today. But the hepatic portal system is very interesting and very important in the body. Basically, what happens is, so you have arteries going to the intestines, and then the intestines are absorbing nutrients from uh, the food we eat, and instead of going straight to the heart, they actually go to the liver first. That's the hepatic. Hepatic refers to the liver, hepatic portal system. And what that allows um, the liver to do is to to clean. One of the jobs of the liver is to clean. So if anything got in that's not, uh, you know, that's harmful to us, It, it can be immediately cleaned. And it also packages up nutrients. We don't want things like free fats just floating around in our, in our blood. So it packages it into lipoproteins, which are cholesterol and things along those lines. So it's, it, that's just an example. There's other packaging that happens as well. So the, the, the liver is very important from that. So it's very strategically placed, this hepatic portal system. But what it does is when it hits the liver, the liver starts the process of elimination and so some of it can actually be metabolized, made into other things, and those other things can be eliminated. And that's what's referred to as first-pass hepatic metabolism. So that's one factor that can do this. So right away, it's not entering the main bloodstream. It's just being, uh, it's being somehow shifted away from the, from the liver. So that, that affects bioavailability. And right there is a major reason why we don't have 100% availability from things that are ingested. Uh, other aspects that can affect bioavailability include drug solubility or supplement solubility, very hydrophilic, really loving water, or hydrophobic drugs, they don't like water or they like fat. So think of oil and water. Oil and water doesn't like to mix. So if you try to mix them, they separate. Same thing here, and that drug solubility can play a role um, if they are very hydrophilic, really water loving, or really fat loving lipophilic, they have difficulty crossing cell membranes and entering the circulation. So if it's that, it stays in the intestine, gets excreted. Another uh, factor is chemical instability. Some drugs may be affected by the pH in the stomach or the acidity of the stomach, or various decorative enzymes in the gastrointestinal tract. In other words, it can be broken down in the intestines, which you know is what the intestines are designed to do in the stomach and all that. So it makes sense. And then finally, uh, i mean, sure there's other factors, but these are the big ones. Chemical physical properties of the drug or supplement formulation. So chemical physical means chemistry and physics. So just basically, not just physics, but physical makeup. So the chemistry and physical makeup. So many factors can play a role in bioavailability, such as particle size. Generally, the smaller it is, the easier it is going to be to absorb salt forms can play a role in this. And this is where a lot of supplements we'll see is like, um, often supplements are, are combined with um, hydrogen chloride and, and uh, which you should, if you remember back to your basic chemistry is, is an acid, but it's also in this case, a salt that can form with a supplement, very basic sort of thing, or you might hear like calcium carbonate might be you, you calcium is is a great thing you can you get calcium carbonate calcium lactate calcium there's a bunch of others those are all different salt forms and those can affect the bioavailability excipients can affect on um, bioavailability as well the excipients are technically inert substances that are added into pills they can be used to bulkify the pill so that it's enough for us to swallow easily um but it it, and it could be used to stabilize the pill so it doesn't you know get a lot of water from the environment or it doesn't evaporate Um, but also it can actually slow down the absorption or prevent the absorption of some parts so excipients um they're inert to the body in other words they don't really affect us but they can affect how the supplement is absorbed so that's it and among others there's other aspects of chemical physical properties of the formulation that can affect this, so these are all factors in bioavailability drugs and supplements can enter cells which they need to do in order to enter the blood through three main mechanisms we're going to talk about these briefly uh, the first is passive diffusion and this basically means the the makeup of the drug helps determine how easy or difficult the drug will transverse cell membranes so we already kind of talked about some of the chemical physical properties that would play a role in this Uh, This is determined by the concentration gradient, how lipophilic the drug is, and the surface area of the cell. So in other words, um, if there's a lot of something outside the cell and very little on the inside, that's the concentration gradient, and it wants to, we call it riding the gradient, so they want to come into the cell because there's less concentration. wants to even out that concentration, so that's one thing that can do this. Um, Lipophilia, the, the cell membranes are very lipophilic. They like fat, so generally substances that are fairly, remember we said we don't want it very lipophilic, but if it's sort of lipophilic or mostly lipophilic, the cell membrane is like that and it's easier for it to pass through. And the more area of the cell, the more easily it's gonna pass through. And this is great because if you look at the intestines, we have something called microvilli, which are just a lot of grooves and just massively increase the the cell area of the surface of the cell. So it makes sense that this would work very well sorry, the self surface area of the cell. So it makes sense that that would work very well, especially there. That's one mechanism for getting into the, into the cells. And it needs to enter the cells before it can enter the, the, the blood. Remember, the way it works is you have the intestines, you have a cell, and then through that cell, it can enter the blood. So it has to enter the cell in order to be bioavailable. So the second way it can do that is facilitated diffusion which is where there's a carrier protein in the cell membrane which facilitates the drugs or supplements movement into the interior of that cell. It does not require energy in order to produce this effect, and that's a key aspect of this. It's facilitated. There's a protein that allows it to do it, but that protein doesn't require any energy. And the third method does require energy. It's called active transport. Similar to that facilitated diffusion, and in that, it does have a protein that aids the drug's ability to enter the cell. But it takes energy, usually in the form of adenosine triphosphate (ATP), which is the energy uh, energy molecule in the in the human body. It's the most prominent one. There's others, but that is by far the most common one in the body. So those are three ways it can enter the cell. Uh, another. Aspect of bioavailability is that most drugs and supplements are either a weak acid or a weak base. Again, we said we didn't want anything strongly hydrophilic or strongly lipophilic. Um, weak acids and weak bases are on the generally on the hydrophilic side, but weak, not much. Whether a, ju- a, a drug is charged or neutral can affect how readily it crosses the cell membrane. Uncharged chemicals can more easily transverse membranes. Basically, lipophilic, when you have a lot of fats, they don't like charges. Charges is really like water. Weak acids and bases can be charged or uncharged based on physiological pH. In other words, what's the normal pH, which is about 7.4 pH. Each drug has a different net charge or non-charge at the body's pH, and therefore a different inherent ability to cross cell membranes. And So this would be part of that passive diffusion especially, but it can also affect facilitated and act, uh, diffusion and active transport as well. So I have a question, why are we discussing bioavailability in the context of herbs and supplements? And the answer for me is because companies will market their supplements by saying their product is better than their competitors. And very, very often, they will say it is better because their product is more bioavailable than their competitors. First of all, just the claim of increased bioavailability is difficult to prove. This is because individuals vary dramatically in how they absorb nutrients depending on such factors as age, underlying conditions. If you have GI tract stuff, if you have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you know diarrhea, constipation, it'll affect this. And just natural variability, just genetic natural variability between individuals. Often studies by companies to determine bioavailability are small, poorly constructed, or even in animals, so they have no bearing on humans at all, none of which give definitive answers as to which is more or less bioavailable. But The bigger issue of companies using this as a marketing point is economics. Just because your supplement is twice as bioavailable, that does not justify a price that is four or five times higher. If this is the case, I can just take two of the lower bioavailable supplement get the same exact amount in my system, and instead of paying four or five times as much, I'm only paying twice as much, same amount absorbed at less than half the cost. And, and I'm, I'm making this up as a scenario, but I've seen this. I, I have gone to conventions, and there's, there's someone there trying to sell supplements, and they're, they're kind of sometimes loudly with a flyer in my face, sometimes whispering. It's like, we're better than those guys just a few, few uh, exhibits down because ours are more bioavailable like well okay but yours are five times more expensive so if you're double the bioavailability but i'm spending five times as much why don't i just take two of the cheaper stuff and i'm i'm good to go and i've saved a lot of money a lot of money these things aren't cheap i mean when we're saying five times the value i mean we're talking the difference between a a 10 or 15 dollar bottle and a 75 dollar bottle of of something you know it's ridiculous the pricing on this stuff Especially when they start bringing in this as a justification for it because there's no justification for it. Almost everything I've seen I I haven't done all the calculators all the time But more often not that I I've done quick calculations I'll save money just by just taking more of the lesser one if I want to get the same amount as your as your more bioavailable type And here's the third issue with this. That's a a real concern for me Uh, and, and that is toxicity Recommended recommended daily intakes, which in the United States are released every five years, describe how much of a nutrient we should be getting on a daily basis in order to to avoid deficiency and its inherent effects. We don't want a deficiency syndrome, that puts us into a sick state, basically. These are based on, quote-unquote, normal or common bioavailability of these nutrients. If you suddenly start supplementing with a variation of the nutrient that dramatically increases bioavailability, it is possible to cause toxic levels of the nutrient in the system. So an example of this is calcium. The recommended daily intake for calcium is 1,000 milligrams in adult men and women, which increases to 1,200 milligrams in women over 50. And signs and symptoms of toxicity have been shown at about 1,800 milligrams of intake. That's not a lot of room there. The bioavailability of calcium varies based on the source But supplements can range from less than 28% to maybe 36% bioavailable normally. So in other words, to get a 1,000 milligrams, if you were to take a 1,000 milligrams of calcium, then you're only going to get about uh, anywhere from 280 to 360 milligrams of actual calcium, which is fine. That's in the calculation of RDI. So what this means is if that... One, if we're to take one, were to take a supplement with much higher bioavailability, it might be pretty easy to get into the toxic range. So, for example, just for round numbers, let's say someone is taking 600 milligrams of calcium supplement and is, absor- is absorbing about 30% of that, or 180 milligrams of calcium. If the bioavailability shot up to 50% from 30%, that means they're getting 300 milligrams of calcium. Or, don't worry about the math there or the equivalent of a 1,000-milligram supplement instead of a 600-milligram supplement. Add in dietary sources or taking an extra pill, and you're very likely to get into toxic ranges. If you take two of those pills, you are toxic. You are in the toxic range. That's, that's an issue. So it's not just you know because there's extra bioavailability. It's all good. No, extra bioav- bioavailability puts you at greater risk, potentially, of toxic effects. So understanding bioavailability is really important, especially when we may be recommending herbs or supplements to patients, family, and or friends. Let's not buy into the bogus marketing claims of supplement companies surrounding bioavailability so we can protect our community and prevent them from spending excess funds on untrue and potentially harmful claims. And with that introduction to bioavailability, and without further ado, let's get into today's herb. Today, we are going to be talking about Ar- Aromophila longifolia, 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 longifolia. I'm not sure if that's a hard G or a soft G. The family for this herb is Scrophulariaceae, or figwort family. The species specifically is Ar- Aromophila longifolia, RBR, parentheses, F. mule. So if you remember, we, we talked a little bit about this in the past. Those are referring... To the uh, the people who put it in uh, their genetic uh, places in, in the species and everything, and the one in parentheses is, is sort of the first one to do it, but then it was revised and is it by the the one that's not in parentheses. So we have RBR. I don't know who that's specifically referring to. You can look it up, and uh, F Mule would be the uh, the current you know the more modern. Uh, biologist or botanist who put it in its classification. The medicinal part basically seems to be leaves. We're going to talk about other parts, but not really in a medicinal way. Other names for this herb are emu apple, dogwood, juniper tree, long-leaved aromophila, berrigan emu bush, fuchsia bush, and native plum tree. Berrigan, unfortunately, is also uses a name for pitosporum, um, Philia rhodes, rhodes, or native apricot, and Aromophylla alternifolia, so a different species under this genus of Aromophila, uh, also known as the narrow leaved fuchsia bro- bush. And, and that's sort of common in this. And then I have a bunch of abor- aboriginal names. Uh, I do not know how to pronounce the. the so one of the things I kind of wanted to get into, but I, I didn't, I decided. Um, not to but i wanted to talk about it because it's important here this is an aboriginal australian aboriginal herb and and we're going to see other uses important uses in that um but you know we would like to think of australian aboriginals as sort of a monolithic sort of culture and they are anything but they're made up of hundreds if not thousands of very specific tribes all with their own languages um so thousands of different languages different rituals and culture and all these sort of things is you know we we, you know coming from the united states i mean we can think of the native americans where we have uh, a bunch of different uh you know uh nations uh indian nations which are very different from each other so you know the apaches versus the um you know what you know the the um iroquois and and stuff along those lines so very similar but even more uh, remember, Australia is as large as mainland America. So it's a large thing, a large continent, uh, a large nation, and very different sort of thing. So a lot of different names, different languages. Each language has its own way of pronunciation, so I have no way to pronounce it. But I'm going to try, and then I'm going to spell it. So Muna is, is one of the aboriginal names, A-M-U-N-A. Tulipurpa, or T-U-L-Y-P-U-R-P-A. Uh Otenange O T N O T E N E R R E N G E Or O R T H E R R E N G E Tulipur T U L Y P U R Joulepur J U L P U R and N N G A W I L. So sorry if you're years hurt from that <laughs> uh, but there you go so those are uh, all aboriginal names and there's plenty more I'm sure uh, a lot of my sources were um, central and northern um, so there wasn't a lot of southern uh, sources that I found in uh, about this herb uh, though um, I think it still grows in the south I think it's important in southern uh, regions but it, there just wasn't literature that I, I could find on it so that opens up a whole bunch of other names as well for this So the Scrofulariaceae family is a diverse family known as the figwort or snapdragon family. And when you see the picture of this, it it, kind of reminds you of a snapdragon, so it makes sense. There are 220 genera and 3,000 species in this family. These plants generally have symmetrical, two-lipped, tubular form of the flowers often born on long spires foxglove or digitalis a plant in this family is an important medicinal herb which is the source of the cardiac glycosides used for treating arrhythmias and it also includes many ornamental garden plants all right so let's talk about this uh the genus aramophila tribe myoporea so tribe is an interesting one it's, it's, it's part of classification, and it's basically, think of it as a, a subgenera, um, and, and often it's called a sub, subgenus, uh, uh, and sometimes it's called a tribe, or a family is another name I've seen, and I'm not sure there's differences between those three, but I've often seen it, so that would be Myoporeae, and is, so the Aramophila Arum- is one of the largest genera of scrophulars scrofulars- I just said it just fine, Scrophularaceae. There you go, Scruffylla, I'm not going to try it again. Consisting of more than 260 species, all of which are endemic to Australia. So all of these species of Aromophila, this, genera, this genus is Australia. The genus is widespread in arid, area, arid areas of mainland Australia, but none occur naturally in Tasmania, particularly in Western Australia, South Australia, and the Northern Territory. Whilst individual species can range in size from prostrate shrubs uh, for e.g. Aromophila serpenes or chinook to small trees, Aromophila bignaniflora, most species grow as compact, low-growing shrubs. The size and shape of Aromophila species is also variable, although the leaves are generally relatively small and may be shiny or hairy. The flowers also share common features across the genus, generally having five petals per flower, which are joined at their base, forming a tube. The flower color can vary widely between species with red, purple, lilac, mauve, cream, white, or even green-colored flowers being common across many species. Notably, many aromophila species share common names, which include emu bush or poverty bush, which relate to the belief that the emus eat the fruit of these species into the arid poor environment in which they grow. The first Australians had substantial knowledge of aromophilus species and utilized multiple species medicinally. Indeed, an earlier study noted that of approximately 70 species that had been identified as being used therapeutically by first Australians from central Australia, approximately a third of those species belonged to either the aromophila or acacia genera. As well as their medicinal uses, aromophila species have a wide variety of other uses by the first Australians, including their use in cleansing ceremonies, in initiation rites, and in lining graves. We'll talk a little bit about this as well. This was a really good article by um, Cock, C-O-C-K. That's the the gentleman's, I think it's the gentleman's last name, and, and their team, and that was written in 2022, so uh, last year, uh, as I'm reading this. the history, let's talk about history. the history of specific herbs and medicinals used by the first Australians is very difficult to determine. They have not had a written language and knowledge and traditions have been passed down orally, with hundreds, if not thousands of different nations and languages, it is difficult to know the origins or ancient uses of Aboriginal medicinals. What we can do to fill in some of the potential history to is discuss some of the non medicinal uses of this plant as it is an n if not one of the most important plants, especially to the central aboriginal nations and and you know just as we're doing here, just a little brief history about the Aboriginals nothing major um a lot of the articles that i I read refer to fifty thousand years of uh aborigines in Australia um I, when I was in Australia and lived there, I always heard 40,000 years, uh, which 10,000 years seems like a a big difference. Uh, So I I usually go with 40,000 years of continuous um, culture, and and that makes it one of the largest long-term cultures in the world, longest existing cultures in the world. They say they are the longest. Uh, I'm not an expert in that, so I don't know. But um, certainly, if not the longest living culture, it's amongst the living cultures of that. So that means this history is very long, and a lot of it is lost to oral tradition. So what are some of these non-medicinal uses of Aromophila longifolia? This plant I'm quoting here. uh, Again, um, I'm quoting uh, from... Another book by Latz, and this is called "Bushfires and Bush Tucker: Aboriginal Plant Use in Central Australia." So this is the that this plant has considerable ritual significance for most Central Australian peoples. Although there does not appear to be a suitable English term to describe it, it could be said to be the most sacred, mystical, or magical of all Central Australian plants. They said this in parentheses, which I, I find a little bit odd. The leaves. And branch are used extensively in ceremonies, especially during elaborate circumcision rites. Small sprigs are placed in the headbands and armbands arm bands of the novices at certain stages, and the foliage is heated to produce an acrid smoke for particular rites. And again, in parentheses, the novice look forward to being smoked as this sig- signifies the end of a particularly grueling stage of the ceremony. Smoke from the leaves is used ritually to blacken certain artifacts. Leaves are also used to brush sacred objects and the bodies of men at certain stages in ritual ceremonies. The branches of the shrub are used to line graves and to cover bodies. This practice being carried out in other parts of Australia as well. If circumstances require that non-initiated persons obtain water from sacred water holes, a procedure which includes branches of the shrub is carried out. In the past, twigs from Aramophila, probably this species, have been placed in headbands, armbands, and through the nasal septum of returning Arente war parties to signify success in killing one or more of the enemy. A caterpillar with exquisite markings that feeds on the leaves of this plant uh, plants are a totemic animal of Arandic peoples. Branches of this shrub are often used to surround emu flesh in the cooking process. And finally, grubs at the roots of this plant are edible and used as food. So grubs are an important food source in, in uh, f- uh, bush tucker is what they would say, a bush food um, e- for the Aborigine people. Uh, and uh, if you're not familiar with the grub, it's basically uh, you know the caterpillar form uh, of of and they can be quite large too. So, we had a when I was living in Australia, we had a a little uh, introduction to bush Tucker where we uh, there was just a handful of us that went out with some some uh, uh, Aborigines uh, women, and the, and uh, they we found just food laying around like a, they call them bush tomatoes, or um, uh, they're like little berries. They, they taste like tomatoes. They'll, they're really nice, and then we found a grub. Uh, and uh, one of my my colleagues had the privilege of actually eating it so uh, They said it it tastes like um, Not my friend, but people other people have described it says it tastes like a mixture of peanut butter and egg yolks uh, It is a particular delicacy apparently So There you go. So that's some of the non medicinal uses of this plant Let's talk about some of the traditional uses of this plant so a decoction from the crushed leaves has widespread use as an eye wash, a cure for skin ailments and headaches, or as a general body wash for various ailments. Treatment is said to induce restful and restorative sleep. Again, this is from that, that book by by Latz, which is Bushfires and Bush Tucker. Uh, Isaacs say says something similar. Uh, fresh plants broken up and soaked in water. The liquid is used as a medicinal bath for general sickness and colds and decoction applied to sores. So this doesn't have a lot of connective words because it was in a, in a, um, in a table. Uh, this one's called, uh, this book was uh, by Isaacs, is called Bush Food, Aboriginal Food and Herbal Medicine. So that's, it, it wasn't very in-depth, but it had some really beautiful pictures in it. Um, so that's where that's from. Another book, uh, which is, a, is a, a good, hefty book uh, and, and a little bit more scientific than some of these others, called Traditional Aboriginal Medicines in the Northern Territory of Australia, uh, adds the wash can be applied once a day for scabies, sores, bites, and stings to localize boils and to relieve aching muscles and joints. It is also applied for headache and chest pains associated with severe colds and flus. The leaves may be mashed together with a little water and rubbed directly onto scabies. When treated this way, leaves are also used as a dressing to encourage the discharge of pus from boils and carbuncles. Crushed dried leaves are mixed with animal fat to make a thin ointment, which is massaged into tender, swollen joints or applied over scabies. If you're not familiar with scabies, they're little mites that actually burrow under the skin and lay eggs. Um, it's very difficult to get rid of, and um, it's, not, it's more disconcerting than, than painful. I think it's a little uh, irritating, but I, it, you know, it's not huge for the host, but it is a, a really weird thing to see. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, it's difficult to deal with. Continuing with traditional uses, several sources also discuss the use of this plant for women's health. Arandic peoples use, uh, Arandic peoples just one of those nations or tribes of, of Aborigines. Arandic peoples use the acrid smoke fumes from smoldering leaves to smoke mothers and their newborn babies. Not only is this considered to strengthen the babies and stop the mothers bleeding, but it also increases or initiates a mother's milk supply. That's according to Lats again. In the center, branches of the common plains plant, Aromophila longifolia, are placed over a fire to make a cleansing steam and medicine used after childbirth. Similarly, to bring on breast milk, the woman lies down on her stomach with breasts suspended over the steam-filled pit. Again, this was Isaac's. So these are two different books. So those are the traditional uses for this. So We see a lot of interesting uses here. So let's talk about dosage and preparation. Unfortunately, dosing of the herb is difficult to determine, as most sources generally describe its use, without giving specific amounts to be used. Um, often you'll hear a handful or some or something along those lines. Traditionally, since there, were, there was no vessels to carry or boil water, many medicinals were prepared as a cold water decoction by soaking in wood bowls. So remember the, the Aborigines are generally a migratory, uh, are migratory in, in general. And so um, you know carrying big clay plot, pots or something like that was just not something that was developed in their culture, but they did have wooden bowls. And so they would soak it overnight or something along those lines and create a cold water decoction. And as we already discussed, smoking was also a common form of application and use. Ointment as well on occasion. Chinese medical actions. So this is interesting. Search through several texts and an internet search did not yield any descriptions of this herb as a Chinese medicinal. Given its use as an internal herb to treat colds and flus in addition to it containing several essential oils, it seems like this herb would uh, would have clear heat toxin properties and belong in that category of herbs according to Chinese medicine. This is me supposing, you know, just putting on some of my own spin on this, so feel free to disagree with me. I have no problem with that. Uh, this is also supported by its topical use in infections. Since it can help sore muscles and joints, we could add that it is a, that as a topical and may also move or regulate the qi and/or blood. While it is used for various aspects of childbirth, the application of smoking, which is rarely used in Chinese medicine, it is one of the applications in Chinese medicine but rarely used makes it hard to translate into a Chinese action, though it may help support the yin or jing or essence in this context. Especially it it strengthens mothers and babies, so that really kind of implies an essence tonification. The yin nourishing aspect is possibly supported um, by its, its use to aid sleep. So that is where that can come into play. Given several of its uses, I would suggest this herb is cooling and may enter the lungs, liver, and kidney. Again, just me trying to do my best to translate it into Chinese medicine, so take it with a grain of salt. Contents of this herb. There appears to be several essential oils in Aromophila longifolia, especially alpha and beta pinene and uh, limonene, limonene. These are considered non, uh, monos, these are considered monoterpenoids. And these and borneol and methone, a powerful antibacterial, are mentioned by that um, one the paper the, um, by Koch and his team or her team. Uh, Terpenoline, alpha terpen and sabonine also have antibacterial activity and have been found as contents of this herb. The leaves appear to have several macro minerals, especially potassium, calcium, and magnesium, and smaller quantities of sodium and iron. And there appear to be significant levels of tannic acid. You know, I, 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 the, the different samples they, they had on this uh, was about 1% to 4% tannic acids. So that's, that, I think, is fairly significant. Koch and his team also says the following are significant contents with medicinal properties. Uh, they had furanoid set, um, sesquiterpenoids, and in here there were genofurinol, a, a uh, major component of the smoke extract, which was detected only when the herb was burned. So that's really interesting because it wasn't there when it wasn't burned, so therefore, and, and yet we know it is, uh, it, it, it says here, and it may help with Alzheimer's disease and diabetes mellitus. So right there this this idea of you know we fir- maybe your first reaction my first reaction was smoking what does that do but here it is it's a compound that doesn't exist unless you smoke it you use the smoke you know you burn it and then there's this compound that can be very helpful so really interesting it also um, may contain iridoid glycosides and, and in these there's geniposide acid and verba, verbascoside or herbascoside, which may have significant cardioactive effects, in other words, help the heart, and may reduce platelet aggregation. Those are pretty significant effects. You know, always take it a grain of salt. I mean, the contents are important because it helps explain why herbs are doing it, but we can do too much significance to something that is in very small quantities on this and and may, while it may have these effects in, in, in more concentrated forms, but also in this context, it may work with a lot of the other things to have beneficial effects also. So, you know, I always, I think the contents are important, but I also think we don't want to put too much emphasis on them. So what does the science say about all this? So this genus, the whole genus, not just this species, has strong antibacterial properties, especially through its essential oils and other constituents as, as, discu- as we've already discussed. Uh, This was supported by Sadgrove and their team, which added they have antioxidant properties as well. Essential oils also specifically showed antifungal activity against several species of fungi, including Candida albicans. While not specific to Aromophila longifolia, several species of the genus show anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effects, which correlate with several of its traditional uses, especially those a key muscles thing, so it makes sense that it would have some some anti inflammatory effects. Immunomodulatory uh, means it helps the immune system, which you know, when you're thinking about the childbirth aspects of that, can be very helpful as well. Drug herb interactions on this, so a search for drug herb interactions with Aramophila longifolia yielded no results. I did it in general, you know, uh, interactions. I did it specifically for cytochrome for interactions and glycoprotein interactions, and nothing came up. Given its relatively specific use by Australian Aboriginal peoples, it is not surprising there are no inter- interaction studies. This is not a very widely used herb outside of the Aboriginal people. Similarly, the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook does not have an entry for this herb so and and neither um i i don't mention it but i, I also looked it up in the pdr for herbal medicines which is a, a pretty large tome um, didn't have anything and i didn't expect them to they generally tend to be a little bit more towards western herbs um but i i didn't see anything there was a lot on the web and and some of of decent ca- caliber because it is such an important herb for the Abri- for the aboriginal for australia aboriginals Um, But uh, not, you know, the books, uh, you know, a lot of the books I have on this, and I haven't seen a whole bunch of updates are a little bit older. There's just not a ton of information on this and nothing on drug-or-interactions. I can find nothing. Uh, The one book, Traditional Aboriginal Medicines in the Northern Territory of Australia, says the wash should not be taken internally and care should be taken to avoid splashing the liquid in the eye. So that's interesting because one of its uses is op- is in optho- opthom- ophthalmology. Uh, they can put it in the eye, the wash in the eye. And the other thing is um, basically the wash, which is crushed tr- uh, leaves soaked in water, is also said to be taken internally for flus and colds. So uh, I, I think these these concerns are interesting because they go, they fly right in the face of what other books said is its appropriate use. So, but I, I did want to put them in here and at least mention them as as we're talking about them. But those were the only concerns I could really find. I- again, a lot of these books are more explaining what they what they're used for. They they a lot of these books seem to me to be a little bit early in in uh, the the investigations of these things and so uh, I'm not surprised we couldn't find much of anything as far as concerns because they're a little bit more hey these you know these are traditional peoples and they have um, really useful medicines we should learn more from them as opposed to well this is what's used and this is why we need to be cautious about which is sort of Chinese medicine you know if you look at those books so um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a different approach. It's, it's, that's why I say it's early. Like early is like we need to boost it a little bit to get some interest in it, and then we can investigate it more, more seriously. So I feel like that's where we're at. And that's basically where we're at. <laughs> so uh, in summary, we started our discussion today with an introduction to bioavailability, an important pharmacological concept with very relevant implications for herbs and supplements. From there, we did our deep dive into Aromophila longifolia, a very interesting and important Australian Aboriginal herb with interesting benefits and cultural significance. And I looked it up. You can purchase this and use it. So I was happy to um, see that sometimes with the Aboriginal herbs especially, it's hard, they're hard to find and hard to get your hands on to use them as an herb. But I did find sites that you can actually purchase this herb. Um, one of the sites that I looked at, it um, looked really nice actually, was in a tea. You know, they, they had it all crushed up and dried and you can drink it as a tea, which again would do a lot of the benefits of some of the traditional uses that we discussed. So you can do it, you can use it. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in some of these things to see if this would work on some of these things, but it's, it's, it's definitely doable. Overall, a very interesting herb with some genuine helpfulness, hopefully. And surprisingly, because last time I did an Australian herb, there was not much in the way of scientific uh, evidence or research or papers on it even. This had a good amount of scientific papers available. Um, not, you know, lot more research needs to happen but i think that that is significant in that this is such an important herb for the aboriginal peoples and so uh there was a lot more on it than i was expecting honestly okay well that was Aramophila longifolia in our next episode we'll be exploring a very useful herb fong fong or silar root This is a relatively commonly used herb in Chinese medicine for treating colds and arthritis. These don't seem related, but in Chinese medicine they can be, which we will be investigating. And as usual, we will be exploring something a little different. Please join us and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on even one exciting episode. Thank you very much. Appreciate you listening. If you like this podcast, Please do us a favor, give us a five star rating in your favorite podcast app. We thank you in advance. We'd really appreciate it. And remember, you can get continuing education units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine professional development activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C O U N C I L.org. And you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at sperbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. As when I teach this in Australia, uh, they would always, whenever I'd say herb, they'd say, um, excuse me, do you mean herb? So then I'd go, no, I meant herb. <laughs> so we have the silent H here. Uh, so spurbsherbs Herbs or at our website, www.sperbsherbs.com. And as usual, we have our bibliography. Thank you. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle, Janelle. Timothy, Roger Rogers. Campbell.